Hey, Max. Hey, Josh. How's it going? How's it going? Pretty good. <laughs> Jinx. So <laughs> this <laughs> this episode's <laughs> guest is Marina Elbero. I'm pretty excited. She plays so many instruments. She does. She's mainly known as a pianist, I believe. But yeah, that's true. But I've seen her at gigs on like Hammer Dulcimer and Vibes and Kitar and she that's plays right. A lot. Yep, is the guitar too? Holy cow! Uh, yeah, she's she's quite a phenomenal uh, force of nature, for sure. She's a, very much a mainstay on the Seattle scene, and it's actually kind of surprising that it's taken us this long to finally interview her for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I guess she hasn't like lived in Seattle for like that long compared to like a lot of people, but. She's been playing so much that it it definitely is time to have her on the podcast. Oh yeah, I see her name attached yeah. to every venue in town. <laughs> yeah, I mean she was the the featured artist in residence at Earshot this year. Even there's plenty to talk about. What do you say we start talking to her? Let's let's do it. All right, here we go. Welcome, Marina. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having Hello. me. I'm doing great. We are so so glad to have you here. We've been doing this podcast for a while, and you're such a an important. I think pivotal member of the scene that it feels like we should have had you on here sooner, but now we're, we're glad you're here now. So <laughs> it's, welcome. An honor. it's an honor. It's uh, I've been watching your work from the distance of being home. And uh, I, I'm really happy that the jazz community has that space because I don't think that sometimes we appreciate ourselves. So thank you for creating that space. It's really, really beautiful. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of your music and um, happy for an excuse to get to talk about it. I'll so second that. <laughs> let's get started. Uh, I know you primarily as a pianist. However, I know you do a lot of other things. You play vibes. I've seen you play vibes. I've seen you play hammer dulcimer. And I know you play other instruments. In fact, I see a Hammond M1 organ in the background <laughs> of your video. What else do you play that's the, oh my say, gosh the room a little bit the drum, set. The, the drum set the piano's over there okay and over here i have my vibes and whirlies oh my and, gosh and ukulele bass and an electric bass that uh, i mean i play bass only for my lessons usually when i play uh with my students in the past i would be sitting on the left-hand side of the piano to play the bass lines. Sure. And a few years ago, I started playing the ukulele bass just because it's so good for for myself. And the piano is totally for the student. Um, so I play drums. I play that little bass. I play any kind of keyboard. But I don't geek playing bass or playing drums. And sure. vibes, I don't have a car that really can fit them. So I only play occasionally with people that really want me to play vibes with them because I don't even consider myself a professional vibes player, but I also kind of what I like about music, it's the fact that it's the same in any instrument. It's just you. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if you don't have many technical skills, to me, it's even more challenging. So it's more fun. I like agree. Playing a bass solo and just playing two notes and, and my head wants to play sixteen notes, but my fingers can't, so it's mm-hmm. so cool. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And that's why I play so many instruments because I like that feeling of starting from scratch again or feeling like it it makes me giggle. 
I have a similar problem slash affliction of also collecting instruments and being really interested. I see that in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's like a new, uh, even still, even though it's still you, it's a new perspective on things, and it forces you to think about music in a slightly different way. And for me, it really helps me understand. The other musicians that I'm yes. working with too. So because I spent more time on trumpet, when I'm playing with a trumpet player, I know what's going on in their head, the things that they have to worry about, and it's it's just really fun. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe this isn't the most unique, but it seems like one of the most unique instruments that you play is the hammer dulcimer. Is that right? Well, yeah, it's the one that I n- know less players. Yeah, that mm-hmm. play. I mean. I don't know many people who even know what that is. Can you just for for most people? Can you give? A I'm gonna I'm gonna do it because look, I found it here in Seattle. Mm. Did you get it at Dusty Strings? I did. Wow. And I was twelve. So now imagine you being twelve and finding an instrument in a foreign country that you're performing, and you go back home and you don't know anybody that plays that either. So I didn't grow up around it. I didn't I didn't know what I was stepping into. Um, talking about fun. The only condition that I put to my family to buy it was that I didn't want to practice it because I was playing at the time. Maybe I, I, I remember counting like 17 instruments and I was like 12. Oh my goodness. <laughs> six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, my mom and my dad had this um, traditional music project. They were always looking for repertoire and instruments. So we had like hundreds of instruments and my mom plays like, 20 instruments. And so I would play bagpipe, flute, guitar, hurdy-gurdy, whatever. Oh, my goodness. The little flaviol, <laughs> gralla, so, and then piano. And my dad would say, you don't practice everything every day. I'm like, I cannot practice everything every day. He's like, I don't, I couldn't. So I said, I'm only taking this instrument because I loved it when I played it. But I was like, I don't want you to say that I'm not practicing. And he said, you know what? You don't have to practice it. You can just play it. And that, that was like a poof, a big revelation. Uh, and so I would just open the case for rehearsals or gigs or if I wanted to play, but I, I never practiced. Cool thing is that at the same time I was taking lessons, uh, drum lessons. Mm-hmm. And my, my drum teacher, Cesar Lopez, he sent me to a jazz piano teacher. So kind of at the same time I was discovering the Hammer and Dulcimer, I discovered percussion, like in a real, you know, technique and sense. stuff. And mm-hmm. then I transitioned towards classical percussion. So here the jazz harmonies, the piano, the classical piano, I was playing Debussy already and then I was playing Chopin. And so it, everything kind of started um, falling into place. And the Hammer and Dulcimer was that place where I could experience all of it without restrictions and anybody telling me this is right, this is wrong. So I would just put my percussion and, you know, and all these harmonies that sound, I, I found it like a, a space of complete freedom, although it's diatonic. And I mean, you need to hmm. know that for a musician, you know, that's like a, a, a frame really tight. Right, <laughs> only a few colors. <laughs> but it took me also, while I was doing all this like Western work on classical and jazz and, you know, and rudiments and whatever, I had to find a way to express myself on the hammer and dulcimer. So I, I went back and I started looking into the modal music that play these instruments. And it's beautiful because then you go Indian music, you start looking into Persian music. I was playing early music, which has psalterium, which is the same. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I discovered a modal 
way of expressing everything in music, you know, again. And so that's also for me a different brain in music, really different brain, which is, and I don't like thinking about the hammer and dulcimer as tonal so much because then it's only one, four, five. You only have like the major scale. Mm -hmm. That's it. Um, so I like the modal because then I, I have like these connections all over the world because music in the world has been always modal until the Western, you know, we have the dominant toning, the keys, the temperate system. But before that, everything was modal. So there is a lot, a lot to dip into and understanding humankind through, to me, through the hammer and dulcimer and, and what really it takes cool. me. Yeah, that's wonderful. So that was a lot of instruments we just ran through, and you <laughs> seem to be quite proficient in so many of them. How in the world do you balance practicing or playing all of them? Like, what do you have routines for them, or do you just play them when you feel like it, or how how do you go about? No, I should I should be more serious. I <laughs> I am not I am not good at routine, probably because I've never had one. So to me, it's hard sticking to a, a schedule and say, okay, I'm going to do these two hours and these three hours. I go pretty much with the flow. And there's many days where I don't play a note because I'm doing office work and teaching. You know, it's it's hard finding time for myself to really sit and play. But I, I, am, um, I would say the most important thing that I'm noticing lately is that if I am making music, thinking about music, um, listening to music, in an active and conscious way, it's it's almost like practicing yeah. on the instrument. I'm the same way as well, actually. Right? How is That's your experience, cool. Max, about it? How how you feel? I mean, tell me about it. I want to know because I never share this thing, so it's fun. Oh, I mean, well, I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, I teach as well, and a lot of people ask me, um, you know, how how frequently should I practice and everything. And I just tell them that what I what works for me is I, I don't practice every day. Um, I'll practice for maybe like 15 minutes or half an hour and work on like one thing and then not practice for another day or two at least. And then come back another day and do another half an hour maybe and then take another day or two off and do that. But that's different than playing too. I mean, you can sit down and just play all the time, hmm. you know. I mean, that's very different than actually practicing something yes and that's a good that's um, a good I get, appreciation I get too like burned out if i actually practice too much i start getting like banging my head on the wall and yeah but listening i think works just as well in a lot of cases for some things like you're interesting to hear for me to hear the two of yours perspectives on this because it's, it's quite different for me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> i, I, think I actually people... <laughs> do yeah <laughs> i try to get in uh, a regular practice routine. But I think maybe one of the differences, I think like the two of you, Marina and Max, are performing a lot and performing a lot more than I am, I mm -hmm. think. And um, I wonder if that just like being able to keep playing all the time is is also, I mean, of course it keeps your chops up, right? So for me, who's like gigging a little bit less, um, I, yeah, try to get in a regular practice routine just to, so that my hands are on the keyboard, on the accordion and I'm playing. Um, I do, however get burnt out on things that I'm working on too. And so I try to keep a rotation of things that I practice so that it's not necessarily like the same one thing for like hours and on, like I would go crazy. So yeah, I'll work on a transcription right. for like some time. And then the next day, maybe 
I'm working on my composing instead. And the next day, maybe I'm trying to memorize a new song or learn a new song and like it, it'll rotate around. And I think also people do like have different things that work better for them. Yes. Like some people are definitely going to work better on a schedule. You oh know, yeah. Just, I'm a schedule person. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's such sure. important, like respecting your own uh, pathway and pace. And as a teacher also realizing that not everybody has the same system of doing things, mm. getting places and feeling good about it because you don't Absolutely. want people suffering and feeling pushed, right? You want people to really f- have their own workflow and, and, work with it. I was thinking, people ask me, especially teenagers, oh, how do you practice? And I I always say that I don't like practicing. So I like <laughs> playing. So I need to trick myself if what I'm going to do is practicing. And it needs to be something that it's fun or that I'm enjoying. Um, because what you were saying, you got like, you know, I get point of board practicing but as soon as i'm doing it with some sort of i don't know i'm always playing music you know i always say doesn't matter what's the level doesn't matter what where are you in the song you can have fun and make music and that's that's the way i i do it so practicing to me means that it's something challenging and fun and a transcription for example i'm i love transcribing too so i sit down and i'm like two choruses. I don't stand up. I don't eat until I have two choruses. So I do oh, these things. I put myself. way more ambitious than I ever attempt. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, a way of getting things done to me. And my friend calls me a productive procrastinator. <laughs> and it's true because I have to do this, this thing, but instead I put myself this silly challenges, like two choruses. <laughs> I don't want to do that job. I don't want to do that work. It's boring. I'm going to do something else. And then I get into a, a new project. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's also maybe works it for seems me. seems to work. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> sometimes better than others. <laughs> so we have you here to also talk about your, I think your latest record called A Life Soundtrack. It's my that, only record. <laughs> but that's a bit of a trick that it's your only record because it's a three-parter record. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, it's called A, a Life Soundtrack, and which uh, Earshot Jazz awarded Best Record of 2019. We're super excited to talk about it here. Uh, do you mind if we just kick things off by listening to the first track off of the first part of this record? Let's do it. Okay, let's listen to uh, Mi Secreto. Here Mm -hmm. we go. Thank you. 
Um, I've listened to 
admittedly not all, but most of the tracks on all three of these pieces of this this record so far. And um, this is one of my favorite ones. Hmm, interesting. Uh, I love all the percussion that's happening, hmm. and I love. There's an energy that seems to kind of emanate from this track in particular that I have not experienced much of. Can we, just as a drummer personally, can you just talk a little bit about what's happening percussion-wise here? Because there are a bunch of different instruments that people might not be used to, to hearing. Yeah, actually, you know, that's uh, that tune is the very first tune I recorded. Wow. And that uh, that that's the first one, like the first album I wanted to release in tw- tw- 2008. I recorded that. Yeah, it was about to turn 30. It was 28, 29. Wait, like the first one ever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first Whoa. track, and okay. it's the first take. I thought... Oh, <laughs> my God. Except for the singles. phenomenal. That's the first take. Okay. <laughs> we didn't rehearse, so I gave the chart to my brother, who is the bass player, and there was some magic happening, and it was that that amazing musician, his name is Glenn Vélez, or Velez, you say it's he's American, but he's a, a top-notch, a first-class world percussionist, and he plays all sort of hand drums and and uh, tambourines, and I don't even remember the names, but he's like such a sweetheart too. And I wrote him in February uh, 2008 through MySpace. Like I met the singer through MySpace. (laughs) I met the percussionist through MySpace. When MySpace started, we were all so excited that we really connected a lot, like really with people. I made so many friends. The, the, um, The man doing the hip hop tune at the end of that first volume also, I met him through MySpace and his name is Albero. And we also discovered we were family and his single was Marina. And so... You know, when I, I saw his profile and, oh, and yeah. I hear Marina, Alberto, I'm like, this guy is actually what? <laughs> it's like, he following me? or So anyway, MySpace, I wrote Glenn Velez and he's a, again, I don't, I don't know his manager. He's a first class percussionist. And I'm like, hey, I would love if you're in Europe sometime soon, I would love recording with you. Nothing, not a word. In September, I get a message saying, hey, I didn't see your message. You know what? I love your music. I'm, I'm in Barcelona tomorrow. I'm like, wait, what? I'm starting <laughs> to record like next week. I'm going to do it tomorrow if you're here. So anyway, it was all a coincidence and, and kind of rushing into the studio, which was in our um, lower part of the house. We had a brand new studio, um, professional. And so, wow, that we sat down and I said to the singer, Come, try it one time. And I believe she she redid the vocals. It's the only thing that it's redone. But the rest, it's first freaking take. And then another friend from friends, Thierry, came, and I think he put some tambourine too later on. But, I mean, that yes, the band was there, and we just did it. And so I don't even know wow. what percussion exactly is in there because it was so many years ago, and, and he had, like, little things around. Uh, magic. Mm-hmm. That's gorgeous. Sometimes I, the first takes. In the my best. case, that's become yeah. like a. Sometimes yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'm curious. Did you write the words uh, for this? <clears throat> I did. And- I did. Um, the singer helped me a little bit. I did. The, I did write the words. Uh, it's based on a Mompo tune. Mompo. It's my favorite composer, probably at least the one that inspires me the most when I compose. 
And I played his music since I was little. He's from Barcelona, raised in musically in France as well. So he has all these French impressionist, you know, color. It's it's so delicate and I love it. And um, that's uh, based on Secreto by Frédéric Monpou. But I did my own. I stretched it out. I kept the key because I love that C-sharp Frisian thing. And I just wrote words, wrote the bridge, you know, I made, I made the tune out of that beautiful melody. Um, so yeah, I did wrote it. I love, I love writing. That's awesome. Wow. Cool. So you alluded to some things that I want to get to. We, we had talked about this being a three part record and you talked about this, uh, first track on this first part of the record recorded in 2008. Was that right? Yep. So this track is from the, the first part, and it's a three-part record that, uh, according to articles that I have read on the internet, <laughs> like on Earshot and other places, that this was recorded in stages. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that that first one was recorded in tw- 2008, and it wasn't released until 2014. I, I uploaded it to the, to the webs, and it was uh, available as number one for a few years, only digitally. So I never saw the, 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 the physical copy of it. And it was called Number One. And I thought, I, so I don't have to think about titles. My next record is going to be Number Two and the next Number Three. So you know if you have all my records, it's going to be easy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, just, it was just digitally <clears throat> released. So when I decide to make a record in Seattle, I'm like, I cannot release a new record if I don't release the first one. I felt like too incomplete, you know, and kind of not respectful to the first one. I wanted to see the first one. But releasing two albums at once, it's a little bit crazy. Like, what are you going to do? Two at once? And so I thought, well, I'm going to do a double. I'm going to just say, look, this one is when I started in Barcelona, and this one is when I started in Seattle. That's it. Um, and then what happened is that the number two is actually an accident because it's like Pop Ross says, a happy, happy accident. Because the one that I went to the <laughs> studio for, it's the third volume that it's called Music is Love. So my idea was releasing number one, Albero, that I recorded with my family uh, in Spain. And number two would be Music is Love, recorded in Seattle with my quintet, my regular band here. But then something happens when I get to the studio here in Seattle and when I'm going to leave the studio, which is that I'm just playing freely on the piano. Um, And so that's the second record. It's an all improvised uh, music, just sitting down. Um, And the improvisations with hands, I didn't know if I wanted to put it in the regular record, you know, I just, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I have Hans's mm-hmm. improvisations with me and my solos. And so I decided to put this, and it's called Agua, water, just because that's, you know, it's like, I don't, that wasn't in my plans at all. That that was a happy, happy incident. So you said you only released the part one digitally at first in 2008. Yeah, uh, actually in 2014. It took me years before I uploaded. And I did oh, it in 2014 I see, I see. because okay. I was moving to the U.S. And I'm like, that's not professional. You need you need an album. You need something. Because what I haven't mentioned here, but, you know, the community knows it pretty well, is that I, uh, I am 42 and I have a 22-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old son. So put yourself in your 20 years old 
and have a baby and at 23 have another baby while I'm already a professional and gigging. But I'm a professional with not much ambition more than performing life, I have to say. I'm from a small country, a small city. Um, I didn't even try to, like, put my trio anywhere. I was raising kids. I would play mostly locally. I had a band of early music in Belgium, half of the band in Barcelona and Belgium. So I got to have beautiful projects and we, we got some awards and then I made a duo with the flamenco singer. But I wasn't really trying to have a career. I was really trying to raise my kids as good as I could and especially being with them because kids grow up only once. And I, That's yeah, and I said no to many touring projects or I, I kept myself so... My record was okay. I didn't want to wait until after 30. I felt that to be fair to myself, I needed to take a picture before my 30 of what was going on. And that's how I see albums, to like taking a picture of that moment musically. And that's what I did. And I yeah. didn't worry about releasing. Um, nobody really wanted to release it anyway. When I asked a couple labels there, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's cool. But, you know, nobody knows you. I'm like, well... <laughs> <laughs> People gotta have a first record sometime, like, man. Never, that's such a ridiculous. Never reason. know me, well, <laughs> according just, to you. I was just gonna say that's pretty like ahead of the times to release something digitally only and and then that's come true. out with the physical copy later, even if it's 2014 and not 2008. You know what was harder, Max? What's that? It was super hard taking it down because to upload the trilogy. Mm. Now we're getting a little bit into tricky details. It's all self-release, okay? I've done everything. I put all the money that I made in the last five years in Seattle out of performing and teaching. I put that money into that record and I did it all on my own, everything. I hired a designer. I booked the studio. I sent a master to the... Every, everything. Anyway, so I have a problem now. I don't find who is my digital distribution company. I'm like, how can I take down <laughs> my own album? And I talk to Whoa. CD Baby and they don't know how to find that out. And they say, you better don't upload something that is duplicated because they are going to take it down. And I'm like, okay. So that's why I released a live soundtrack in 2019, but I don't upload it yet. I need to find out how I do that. And it's months oh of being worried. And I look into my emails, into my old um, Gmail or Hotmail. It's like... That website doesn't exist anymore. It means somebody bought it. I mean, guys, <laughs> one oh, wow. day magically, I get an email from Denmark Music Corporation saying, hey, we have $150 for you here and we couldn't find you. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> they found me through my website <laughs> asking me if I wanted money. Wow. And I said, well, the money is cool, but... Can we take it down? Because I'm, I'm she's like, yeah, no problem. Tell me what day you want. <gasps> I couldn't imagine wow. serendipity. <laughs> I never uploaded that through them. That's probably a website, you know, that got absorbed. I don't know. It's We're talking about 2014. So the World Wide Web has changed a lot. So, yeah, finally, I, I could upload it this uh, last August. And now it's available in all platforms. Yay! The three volumes as one album. So I'm really proud of that. And sorry it took, took me so long, but I think it's important for musicians also or people who want to be a professional musician knowing these things because it's so com And you feel so lonely. Oh, yeah. It's like, what do I do now? Who can help me? Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, we mm, did it. Yeah. <laughs> I think anybody who's put out music in the past couple of years <laughs> knows about, ha- has had something happen like that where their record is kind of sitting in limbo and not knowing how to move what, forward. What, uh, but that's an amazing story. Times. Thank you for sharing. It was on Bandcamp, which uh, yeah. we all know that Bandcamp mm-hmm. is a really good way to to really, because, you know, now you see Change people saying, amazing. oh, Spotify last year, I had like yeah. um, 20,000 listeners and, and I think, yeah, $20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if if that. it's 20,000, I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know. If that. Yeah. I intentionally posted a thing saying I don't use Spotify. I don't use Spotify. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. Yeah, I will never use Spotify. But you know, I use other ones. I mean, it's what iTunes or yeah. whatever. Um, when I want to support a musician, I know how to do it, and and Bandcamp is it's a good yeah. way. Yeah, Bandcamp is awesome. So this first record or first part, and actually all three of them, is just an incredibly diverse record. I hear influences from jazz, of course, but flamenco. There's Cuban music. There's a Greek tune, and Indian classical music mm-hmm. makes its way mm-hmm. onto here. Uh, tell me about all these influences. How did how did you get to work with so that's, many different? That's why I call music? it a life soundtrack because it's really, really something that it's been my life. I haven't tried anything too hard. Things happen to us, and in my case, it's been all about music since my family were musicians too. So it's been performing a whole life of performance. Also, where I come from, which is Spain in Barcelona you are really close to so many places. So we we would be touring around mostly France because it's really close. I was living in the border, but also we would go to Morocco many, many times. My father was a musician, a poet, and I would say a producer, an inventor of shows. We would go to Morocco and he would, would these musicians and jam with them. And I would, I would dance and learn the dances and everything. I mean, I was, to me, was natural. And then my dad would take them to Spain and, you know, put a tour for them together and we would play with them. So he produced several crazy shows like that, um, really homemade in a way. But yeah, I got exposed to all these musics from all over the world. And then also people, you just get to festivals and meet other musicians. So it's been always natural. I never thought, oh, I want to play early music or I want to play with Indian musicians or I want to play. It's more like it just happened to me. And so I couldn't call it another way than a life soundtrack because that's what, yeah, that's, that's my repertoire. It's always something that happened to me. (laughs) That's beautiful. That's such a cool concept. Do you plan on keeping this going? Maybe future volumes? Look, um, the pandemic stopped I mean, everything. Not to look too hard, but. <laughs> um, so it's December 2019 when I released the CD. And I pay a publicist for three months and boom, <laughs> it all stops. So <laughs> to me, that this is kind of a closed project. Of course, a life soundtrack continues. That's a name that I already used on my Patreon when I started, which was in 2017. I decided to start the Patreon in 2016. I had them all, guys. Yeah. Reverb Nation, MySpace, um, keep keep throwing at me. I, I've had them all. I tried all these things. I'm I'm not getting TikTok. I'm fine with it. There's also a point. Same here. Do you have TikTok? No. What about you, Joyce? I tried for like a week and then gave up. Really? Interesting. I like I can kind of like it, what you say. No, no, I don't understand that. I mean, there's cool stuff on there, but I don't know. It's 
maybe I'm too old to be learning another platform or something. I was gonna, I was gonna use that excuse. I'm like, I'm okay being too old for something now. <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> I can use it, but you, I don't know. So anyway, yeah, that that kind of um, uh, of concept of a live soundtrack, I think it's perfect for Patreon because. Think about what music it's gonna be still there in 200 years or 2000 years. It's up to us. It's up to the audience. It's up to, so if we just sit around and let the mainstream go, that's the, that's what it's gonna be obviously there. But if people take this thing more personally and decide, oh, I wanna support this artist, I wanna, then we are creating something together and it's super meaningful, even if it's only for a few. We are actually doing yeah. it from a place of togetherness. And, and that's why I like the concept of a life soundtrack because it's my life soundtrack, but it can also be yours and you can be part of it. And we all go through the same life experiences. So uh, ultimately we write different music, but we write music out of the same emotions and the same situations. And that's why we connect with strangers when we play and, and they get touched because it's actually the same feeling. So yeah, it's, it's a nice concept, a life soundtrack, but it's not like I'm, it's a project that I have totally designed. It just happens. I would like changing a little bit next record and something that I've been procrastinating productively about. It's my string quartet that I started writing like Mm. seven years ago. And that it is like this 10 minutes. I like it, but it's only 10 minutes <laughs> with hammer dulcimer and piano. And probably um, I would like to have bass and drums. So that's what I would like to, to do uh, for my next thing. And I'm thinking about inviting some electric musicians or rock musicians and some tunes like, um, because that's also what's happening to me here in Seattle. You know, I'm connecting with all these different, and I actually would like to cross over more between scenes and be more with the classical people and hang out and play with the rock people and elect- electronic music. So I'm trying to go yeah, I've out seen and some videos of you running around with a guitar and shredding. <laughs> yeah, that's like okay. Okay, let's talk about the guitar for a second. That's that's <laughs> because I I like laughter a lot, and that's like my yeah my funny side. Okay, let's call it funny because <laughs> to me it's not a serious instrument at all. It's, it shouldn't be it looks con- so fun. <laughs> exactly. Okay, it's a toy. It's me toying. It's me being a five year old, and nobody is gonna take that away from me. <laughs> but it's it's. Not serious. And and even Harry Hancock doesn't use it seriously. You know what I mean? It's a toy. Yeah. And when I did the, the jazz festival, I'm like, okay, I want it to be wireless because I'm going to make an entrance with the guitar from outside, from the audience. Wireless. Right. Because this is my part of show too. And I think it's important sometimes putting a show. You don't have to do anything. You express yourself however you want to do it. But I am a street performer. I was raised performing on the streets. And when you perform on the streets, you do have two options, taking in consideration the audience or not, like anybody anywhere else. But if you do, it's so much fun because you actually create it with them so, I mean, so truly that I would say, um, yes, I realized lately, why not doing something that people will remember the concert for? Because people remember the experience, not so much the songs, especially jazz concerts. So if I can create 
a little tiny memory experience that night for them with them it's yeah. then it's cool so that's that's what kitter brings you know people smiling people yeah I like that exactly and then i sit down and i play piano you know it's not like i'm gonna play the whole mm-hmm. concert no but hey i have fun you're gonna have fun because we're gonna have fun together <laughs> that's the kitter story Keto is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten to try one like once in my life and just, I felt like such a rock star. It was really, really fun. It was, it was just me too. <laughs> there was nobody else. I think you're automatically entered into rock stardom if you just pick one totally. up, actually. Yeah. You just have to touch one and you're automatically. Look, piano star. players, we are seated behind a big table. Uh, it's hard uh-huh. to see how we play. <laughs> it's hard for us to look at the audience because we're sideways. Hi. And so mm-hmm. the guitar, all of a sudden you're like a, you're like a guitar player or a sax player. You can yeah. face the audience. You can move around. You can. Yeah. How did you? How do you think I felt when I started playing the accordion after decades of playing the piano? Oh, hi, audience! <laughs> <laughs> didn't know you were uh-huh. here. <laughs> you can move around. You can jump. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I nice. also played accordion. Oh, cool! I didn't know you also. Yeah, played but accordion. I don't have one. I actually want to have a small one because I'm again. It's like me and vibes. I'm not a professional accordion player, but I can play tunes and I know how the chords work and can mess up a little bit, but sure. I, I know what it is and uh, I love it. So accordion, it's one of my favorites. I should have one. I had one. I, I had bet one. Josh can help you with that. Really? I could probably help you with that. <laughs> I, might, I might go into it because I love it. I think it's a beautiful instrument. Yeah, they're mm. wonderful instruments. Well, let's get back to your record a little bit. I want uh, to check out one of the tunes off of the third part, if you don't mind. Let's do it. Uh, So yeah, let's take a listen to I Thought I Knew.
wow, this is a really beautiful tune. I love the flute on mm. it. And I, I really actually, I really like the piano figure that you play on the in-head and the out-head. It's just like this repeated, like rhythmic flow thing. It, it honestly reminds me a lot of like Johann Sebastian Bach kind of sounds, even though it's not. And uh, yeah, the textures are really, really cool. I love Thank this Thank you, Josh. Uh, this tune has um, I do too. a cool story. And that's one of the things that, I don't like practicing, remember? So I was doing something on the piano just for fun, which was whatever you want to play with one hand, you're going to play mirror with the other. So if I play thumb, I'm going to play both thumbs. If I'm playing if I'm playing middle finger, both are playing middle fingers. And you can do that placing your hands on the same notes, do, re, mi, fa, sol. Or you can do that placing your hands on different places but you still play with the same fingers. And so hmm. I started doing sevens or nines. It doesn't need to be. So I just would do random things. And one of them was that head. And I just repeat it and repeat. So the whole thing, it's based on that idea that I had of mirroring something. And I told my ex at the time, um, who is a piano player as well. And I said to him, hey, look what I found. <laughs> And he's like, wow, that's super cool, blah, blah, blah. And a week later, he comes to me and says, look what Chikoria is doing. I'm like, what? Mirror things. I'm like, are his things better than mine? <laughs> he said, no, not really. You are really cool to him. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, these sort of things, it's a really nice way of tricking yourself, practicing and finding new things. He has uh, another thing that's the, the 10 drummers that I also think a lot like really percussion instrument with my both hands and acting as a big instrument, not like two hands and piano. So that tune came out out of one of my silly moments that I sit down and I try random things, not so much playing music, but so this is my mirror take. That's awesome. Yeah, some of the best music comes from just wild experiments <laughs> yes, like that. That's yes. really, really cool. Was that Hans on flute? It is Hans Teuber on flute, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Who is else on this tune? Hans Teuber, that is actually the producer of my mm-hmm. of that album. And he also is the producer of my improvised music album because he was there and he's the one telling Floyd at Litho. And I was just warming up or winding down um, the last. So Hans, it's one of the musicians there. We have Jeff Johnson on bass. Have you had Jeff Johnson in the podcast? Oh, yes, we have. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, he's... He's got some stories. Yeah, he's a wonderful player. Yeah, and human. I love him so much. He's been such an important person in my family here in Seattle. He would show up for a rehearsal and then we'd hang out. And he was talking to my son about life and death and how you feel and i mean amazing amazing beautiful human then i have jeff push who since i met the very first time at capital cider i decided that i wanted to have jeff in my band like i didn't know who else but jeff was like i need this energy i love this energy so jeff push i have it in percussion i also have devon lewis on drums so i get to have both of them and that's it. That's my quintet. Yeah. Jeff, Devon, Hans, Jeff, and I. Yeah, that's really great. I love how the song develops. It almost seems like it has... Like When you set out to record this, did you set out defined section changes? Or was it kind of more of a... So... 
something that came together on its what own. What happened with this record and this one and the Sweetness of the Edge, which is another tune in that volume, um, I didn't want to have the whole quintet sounding the, the whole time. I think it's not smart if you have a quintet to have everybody playing the whole time because then you have one texture, right. you can make it thicker. But having solo, duo combinations, I think that's that's what I was looking for. And I don't like telling musicians what to do, but, you know, I really like people. But I thought I need to ask them to not play. It's more asking them what not to do because otherwise, you know, everybody wants to play. And Devon starts on the cymbal, and, and Jeff, and at that moment, so, which is beautiful. <laughs> but if I, I want it to be different, I have to say it. So I did say a few things about, I want here only the two of us, and then you come in, and then you come in. And that's it. I didn't say any any other things than that. Very cool. Well, let's switch gears just a little bit. You're also involved in something called the quarantine hmm. sessions. It's another accident, you know. It's a funny... I think yeah. what happened with the quarantine sessions is that I really saw it coming a little earlier than other people in Seattle because of my, I was going to go back to Spain after five years and it got canceled. And I'm like, whoa, this is coming serious. And so quickly mm. I I saw it. I saw it and I went to my closest recording studio here in Shoreline and I said, can we start trying something out this very Sunday? Like this and it's March 15th. The lockdown is not even in place yet. It was like the next day. And I, I one week before that, I'm planning on the first live stream. Knowing that we're going to have all the technical problems, because I knew that the video is complicated, I wanted to make sure we would have a good audio. So let's go to recording studio. Let's see what happens with the video. But... To me, the most important part is that the audio is good so we can even send the people later the audio. We can do something with it or the artist can release it. And I go there, I sit with Phil Peterson and we sign an agreement on a napkin at the bar at the Easy Monkey in Shoreline. And um, <laughs> yeah, we signed an agreement, you know, we did that. We sat down and, and we wrote like, very basic clause where the money would go to the artist. We would cover first the studio expenses that would be that much. And it was beautiful. And we put together three concerts. We raised quite a few thousand dollars. Um, these three weeks in March, we're speaking about March 15th, 22nd, and 29. More than 15 or 20 artists play there. And it's also interesting. It's, it's, I have a, a little documentary about it that it's not been released, but I have it. My sister did the, the documentary. It's it's just interesting because how it happens and when it happens and who is around me and that when I call musicians and people, who shows up? So it's, it's just beautiful to see that we didn't know anything about mass. The first one, everybody sharing mass, uh, mics and all. I mean, it's, 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 again, it's kind of historic just seeing the evolution. And then after the third one that I curate, which by the way, none of the concerts were about me. I took the first one because I knew it was going to be the worst. And I said, you know what? I'm going to, who wants to come the first one? And then we did the second one was much better with Serena and Shaina Shepard. And then the third one was pretty good too with, um, that was um, Tiffany Wilson with her trio. Anyway, um, it was beautiful to see that we did it, that people showed up, the audience showed up with all the technical difficulties. And of course, all that press that all of a sudden I was getting calls from the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, 
uh, CBS. We did this one with CBS. I don't even remember. It was like, a, and I am on a freaking mental breakdown. I am really scared. I've lost overnight $8,000 just with the, all the gigs. Like in a week, I, I have a loss of $8,000 that I'm not going to make. And I'm flying my daughter back from New York because I'm freaking out to let my daughter be in New York. And so I am mentally exhausted and scared and, yeah, on a breakdown and being interviewed by the New York Times, which is like, can I do something with it? Can I take that momentum? No, this is this is crazy. You need to try to survive, Marina. What the heck are you going to do from now on? So it was intense, Max. And what I did after that, it's taking a break and just figuring out my survival and apply for grants and put my teaching or, you know, like, like we all did. But I'm like, I don't have time to produce show for other people and other women when I don't know how I'm going to eat next month. So yeah, that was pretty stressful. I did a bunch of different things and workshops online and whatever, grants and grants. And I applied for jobs and... And then I thought, okay, let's let's do another one. Um, so I scheduled a new one for May and June with more or less the same people that especially the first night were with me, all women of color, actually, and two of us immigrants, like Adrian and I, which are the, the whitest ones. But, you know, it, it's a really beautiful group of women. And we do the first one late May. And in between the first one and the second one, what happens? Black Lives Matter happens. George Floyd killing happens. Seattle is what it is. So I call all my sisters and I say, I don't know what to do. You call it. Um, I'm just, you know, uh, um, Stone Gosser donated the studio. Floyd donated his time for the May and June. And they said, we want to do it. We want to donate the money to Black Lives Matter, but we want to do it. And we're going to do it in the open because, you know, I started selling tickets since the day one. My live streams... Usually, I didn't think about them as being in the open, but as being ticket events and only avail available for certain days. Um, but people started doing all these live streams open and leaving, leaving all the videos out there, uh, which I think it's too much information. But And so that second one, we didn't sell tickets. We asked for donations only, and we did it in the open, and it's available on YouTube. And again, we did it because... The, um, the sisters there, they said, we want to do it and we want to do it this way. So it became meaningful again and it became something really like a community experience. Learning from all that, yeah. we just did one more that uh, Hava, I said, Hava, you lead the next one. And she did a beautiful job, like really looking for a, a nice, beautiful studio, which is Studio X. And we did like a freaking movie. And she actually took the quarantine sessions to the maximum, to the where I wanted it to be, which is after you do the live stream, you have a record you can release. And she actually released an album out of that. So being a really non-ambitious project and more of a survival instinct, um, almost like fight or flight response uh, from me, it was beautiful to see the three sessions, what, I mean, the three moments what, uh, when this happens, how meaningful they were for all of us and how beautiful it turned out to be. And again, I never really played my music. I never really played a concert. I didn't feel like that, that 
that was what I wanted to do. So yeah, it ended up being a small, humble project that had a beautiful impact, I hope. Yeah, I remember the quarantine sessions being definitely one of the earliest live stream concert series and um, seeing that at the start of the pandemic. And yeah, I was really grateful um, to, to see that community blossom. So thank, thank you, you for doing that. Thank you. So I want to shift gears yet again and talk about something that happened most recently. So the Earshot Jazz Festival has now winded to a close, but you were the artist in residence at that festival. And that's just so cool. I remember seeing your picture <laughs> on the Earshot Jazz magazine for like a couple yes, months. Yes, yes, I was twice <laughs> All over. Yep. <laughs> I went to Joe's Cafe yesterday by Cornish, and I still see the programs there. And I said, hey, guys, can we put these to recycle? I, I don't want to see my face again. <laughs> that already happened. So tell us about this. How how did that happen? And uh and, and tell us about I, I was offered to be in that, like, um, probably late spring, uh, almost in the summer. And uh, when John tells me, John Gilbert tells me they want me to be the dressing artist, first thing, I'm really happy and honored. And then I say, but I'm so rusty. <laughs> I haven't played with a band in a year and a half. And <laughs> But I said yes, and they said I could do whatever I wanted. I... Um, I had a budget that I could spread in four nights and I did what I wanted to do. First thing, my quintet, I think that's honoring, you know, people who have supported me as a musician from the very beginning, musicians that they've been with me, shaping my music and making it beautiful. And uh, that was the first one. Then I wanted to do a big band thing and I wanted to work with teenagers, with kids. So that's when Roosevelt High School jumps in and I wanted Alex to do the arrangement. I didn't realize that Alex was a Roosevelt alumni, but so I first talked to Alex and I'm yeah, 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 sure. And that's Alex yes. Dugdale, right? For our listeners. Yeah, sorry. Familiar. Alex Dugdale, yep. who is a, an amazing, amazing, talented musician and arranger and composer. So that was really cool that he said yes, because he's also part of Roosevelt family. And that was a blast seeing these kids playing my music. It's like, oh, so good. Seeing other people playing your music, listening to your music from another. I, I barely played that night. The piano player knew how to play my tumbao. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh. So that was a blast. And then I wanted to do the quarantine sessions, honoring kind of to me, I mean, I cannot say it's close, the project, but you know, it's not something I'm pursuing um, really intentionally. So I wanted to honor that project doing a live performance with audience. And it turned out to be a double bill with Havas album release and then the quarantine sessions like hosted by me. That was cool because it was the Halloween weekend. And so that same day I said, you know what? I'm going to bring uh, a little pot uh, and we're going to just throw stuff in there. So I brought like, I don't know, thyme and rosemary and, you know, things. And, <laughs> like an actual pot. <laughs> and I would go, I, I, I go on stage and before I sit on the piano, I start throwing stuff in there and I stir it up a little bit. And I'm, okay, yeah, that's good. And then I play and then another woman comes in and she throws something and then she sings. And it was so funny because everybody was like, oh my gosh, your witch is right. What are you doing? <laughs> so yeah, a little bit of a show, remember? And I thought about it the same day. And it didn't change much. As I said, put some... Such cool ideas. <laughs> I also have this other thing that we did with my friend, Alba Carmona, the singer for Mi Secreto. Um, we would uh, give notebooks to people 
to the audience so they can write um, their thoughts. And I have a bunch of notebooks here with beautiful reviews. It's it's something that, again, creating an experience with the audience and being grateful and acknowledging their part because they do much of my work because I, I'm here playing and nobody cares, nothing happens. So they actually make it happen. And the last concert I did, that's... um super fun and interesting project that came to me last summer as a remote um, collaboration. And I produced this song for this beautiful master violin player from India. His name is Ganesh Rajagopalan. He's a master. He's played, he plays um, actually a lot with Zakir Hussain. And he's played also with John McLaughlin for the Jazz Lovers and Shakti. He's been in that project for a few years. And so when he calls me and says, hey, I have this improvised melody. Could you build something around it? And I did what I could from my logic, you know. He was so happy that he invited me to play. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and we played in Kirtland in September. So I transcribed his music, arranged his music in a way that at least a bass player and a drummer could have charts and follow. He also did an effort to repeat things the same time, something because, you know, he's also an improviser. So we are trying to find this middle ground, but it's an amazing way of understanding music and it's modal again. So to me as a jazz player, it's easy when they give you modal music, you put f four different chords and it sounds amazing, but it makes sense because the modal system is making sense. I mean, I'm just being colorful and getting to understand the rhythm and the number sequence that they do and how they shorten. Um, but they don't change the scale. So it's really beautiful. I'm, I'm enjoying this process of getting again into Indian music with such a, a master and Sridam, the percussionist. Oh my gosh, that man with these little ganjiras, which are these tiny, tiny tambourines that he can make, I don't know, 10 sounds out of one of them. It's like, it's like a singer. So that was a blast that night. Uh, what are those tambourines called? Um, ganjira, ganjira. I believe so. I'll I'll check. But it's such a rich world of percussion and rhythm. And I am, at heart, I am a percussionist. And to me, piano, it's a percussion instrument. And Indian music, it's like a rhythm taken to the ultimate level, you know. <laughs> Xavier Le Couturier was playing there. And Xavier was saying, why am I so nervous and I said to him, <laughs> because this is super precise. It's like, we cannot mess one because it messes all, all what's coming after that. It's so precise. Xavier and Tim, Tim Carey, that did an amazing, amazing job learning the music and, and opening up to the improvisation world. So that was um, a unique concert. I don't know if I'm going to do it again or not. I mean, I wish yes, but uh, that was a blast and hard work. So beautiful. And then we sell out, sold out every concert. So again, thank you, Seattle. Thanks to the community. I, I don't understand how these things work. And um, I don't have any patrons or any, you know what I mean? I am really an independent musician like, like you and, and I'm here to share all my experience with whoever wants, and I'm I'm happy to share. I always do uh, how I do things, how I uh, how I like my contracts, or I mean, these kind of things are important to share with younger people because that's actually what you need to know. You need to value yourself. You need to ask for what you think is right, 
we need to be sustainable also. We cannot get more money than tickets we sell, but we need to we need to start being comfortable talking business in music and and I'm happy to share. That's the only thing I can share with other people. How we get um, audience to come out. I think I also shared, but um, try to connect with them genuinely. Um, because, yeah, that's that's all I do. I'm being myself. I'm not trying. <laughs> well, where can we check out your shows that are coming up? If someone wants to stay in touch with you, yeah. Well, I have my website. Yeah, it's jasmarinalbero.net. And something cool that I would like to tell you is that Luis Gallo from Spain is coming back if the last variant of the virus allows. But he's planning on being in Seattle and the Northwest uh, late January. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have uh, Luis Gallo is a flamenco player and also he improvises. So we have a beautiful, every year he, he used to come in January and we do a few concerts. And this year it's going to be between January 20th and 24th. So check my website. We're, we're going to do the old church in Portland. We're going to do the Good Shepherd Chapel here. So that's a unique thing. And then he goes back to Spain. That's super exciting to look forward to. Is that a band or is that duo or or do you know yet? Or uh, We're going to do probably trio here. And then we're going to do duo at the house concert in Portland. Nice. So I think we're going to do trio and duo this time. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we're at about time here. Thank you so much, Marina, for joining us and talking to us about this amazing record and all of these amazing projects that you're working on. Uh, best of luck in your upcoming performances. You're so kind. And thank you for taking all this time and interest about my music. And I do appreciate that. You do such a serious work thank here. You. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Jazz Talk Seattle, a monthly podcast hosted by Josh Howe and Max Holmberg. 